Pastor, we'll go ahead and get started. Um, let me just briefly explain why we're doing this. We are right now in a sermon series uh, this Advent season, and we are looking at the first and second uh, comings of Jesus. And we are in first and second Thessalonians, and so the sermon series have been based on those two books of the Bible. Um, and we come today to at least during the, the 9 o'clock hour, to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And uh, as Pastor Ken was thinking through the sermon series for the Advent uh, season, he thought it would be better to handle that text uh, during a joint ABF session because there's a lot of interpretive questions and challenges uh, that would be better suited in a context maybe like this as opposed to a sermon in which he'd have to spend 95% of the sermon just going through all the interpretive challenges. So we thought we would spend some time during a joint ABF to tackle some of those challenges, um, maybe get a better grasp of what God has for us in that chapter, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. So we hope and we pray that this will be a fruitful time of discussion. I'm going to pray for us here in just a moment. I also want to let you know that uh, we are each are going to have some time where we're sharing about different aspects of the text. But then we're going to give you guys opportunity to ask questions. So please uh, write down questions that you might have for us. And we are going to set some time aside to field some of those questions. And I almost want to call it more of a Q&R, question and response. Maybe not a question and answer, uh, but we'll give you our responses um, but with that, let me pray, and then I'll hand it over um, to Leo to read the text for us. Father, we want to pause here and thank you for gathering us here as your people and giving us this opportunity to take a close look at your word. We pray that you would um, enlighten the eyes of our hearts through your spirits working in us. We want to... Um, to live out, to understand correctly what you have for us in your word, even difficult chapters like the one that we're going to talk about uh, this morning. So lead us, guide us, we pray. Um, may we come to a better understanding for our good, um, that we might become more Christ-like uh, in the process. And uh, for the sake of Jesus, we pray these things. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, if you will open your Bibles up to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we'll be reading verses 1 through 12, and we ask that you keep your Bible open, unless you've memorized this chapter, which we imagine most of you have done, uh, but if you haven't, like myself, uh, you'll want to keep this open so that you can follow along uh, as we go. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, report, or letter supposed to have come from us saying that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. 
Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? And now you know what is holding him back, so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders, and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. Well, those verses contain any number of interpretive puzzles, including a few that I have jotted down on your handout. Um, one that comes right out of verses 1 and 2 is the question, what exactly had the Thessalonian Christians heard that had them upset and confused, and how did they hear it? And we can't be certain. A couple of possibilities come to mind. One is that we know from 2 Timothy that some false teachers in the first century had over-spiritualized biblical prophecy, the doctrine of the resurrection and the second coming, by which I mean instead of looking for a literal return of Christ and an actual physical resurrection, these teachers said that those were metaphors for um, the new experience of the presence of Jesus in our lives and the new life that we enjoy um, in relationship to him. It's possible that an early form of that teaching had reached the Thessalonians, and that's what uh, they, they thought. Uh, it is more likely, it seems to me, that due to the severe persecution that they were experiencing, some of these early Christians wondered if the terrible day of the Lord that they knew about from the Old Testament had come upon them and that they were being swept up in the, the trauma and chaos of the last days and that the day of the Lord, therefore, was already upon them. Um, Paul corrects this misunderstanding, saying that the day of the Lord will follow the tribulation period and any claim that the day of the Lord has already arrived is false because certain things have to happen first and have not yet happened. Another question is, well, what does Paul mean by the day of the Lord? And uh, I can be briefer here. Talked about it in the sermon a couple of weeks ago. The day of the Lord is an Old Testament expression that uh, views um, not just a 24-hour period, but that time when God will decisively intervene in history to rescue his people and to judge the wicked. Um, who or what is the man of lawlessness? This one we will come to in a moment. And how literally do we take expressions like um, God's temple and claiming to be God in verses 3 and 4? And then also, who or what is the one that restrains or holds back the man of lawlessness currently in verses 5 through 7? And how will he be or it be taken out of the way. Um, 
Some people undoubtedly will be troubled by verse 11 and the idea that God might actually send delusion on people, that God would um, punish people by making them believe a lie. And then, of course, uh, a question that we will get to uh, today is how does this text fit various um, eschatology schemes? Eschatology is the doctrine of the end times, and um, there are different options, as you probably know, and uh, we wonder, especially we who are um, looking for the millennium to come in the future and the tribulation to come in the future, uh, but might not agree on the timing of those things with respect to the rapture of the church. Well, how does that, this text fit those interpretive choices? As Drew already said, when I started preparing this series back in January, I thought, I don't see how I can preach this in a 25-minute sermon. So here we are. And uh, then I'm going to punt to Dave and ask uh, the question, who or what is this man of lawlessness that we read about here? There are five descriptions of the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. First of all, he's described as the man of lawlessness in verse 3 and the lawless one in verse 8. Now, simply meant means that he's a person characterized by lawlessness. The law here I take to be the law of God. He rejects anything that God has said in his revelation. He is the ultimate evil person. Secondly, he's called literally a man or a son of destruction in verse 3. This is an idiom that refers to a person characterized by destruction. This could either mean that he actively brings destruction on people. This is how the New Living Translation takes it in their translation, the one who brings destruction. Or he's the one who passively experiences destruction. And this is how the NIV text has taken it in their translation, he is the man doomed to destruction. I think this is the best understanding. He impacts the world for a period of time, but when the Lord finally comes down to the earth, he will, that is a man of destruction, will experience that eternal destruction. This is the focus of 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 8. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. And it's this message that brings the encouragement that's listed in verse 17. Number three, I'll put verse four together. He opposes God and in extreme pride, he exalts himself above the true God and any other so-called God or object of worship. The result of this arrogance is his proclamation that he himself is God. He is the king prophesied in Daniel chapter 11, verse 36. Notice all the echoes here. The king who will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will say unheard of things against the god of gods. He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed. And I take this passage fairly literally as he sets himself up as God in uh, the temple. Number four, in spite of his outrageous claim and his evil deeds, many people will embrace his deception. Why? 
Verse 9 tells us that he is energized by Satan to perform all sorts of miracles that seem to confirm his divine claims. Their deception comes, as it does today, because they reject the truth and live in terms of wickedness. And God allows this to happen. Number five, to focus on the verbs associated with the man of lawlessness, he is revealed at a certain point in history. This revelation seems to be the key point of the text. The verb is found in verse 3, verse 6, and verse 8. So at a certain point in history, he is revealed for the man that he is. And also in verse 9, he has a coming. He would be evidently a known figure in history, but now he is revealed for who he is. Just like Jesus, he has a coming and a revelation. He seems to be framed in terms of everything against Jesus. And the message of Paul in this passage is simply this. The day of the Lord has not arrived because this person has not been revealed. He is a key figure, I think, in the tribulation period. And the message is simply you're not in the tribulation because he is not at work. Finally, who is this man of lawlessness? I'm not here with any sensational claim uh, this morning to identify uh, the person. Uh, these texts, it does, it does seem to me, identify him as a real person in history, not an institution, not a principle, or anything like that. There has always been, there have always been people who have been against Christ and have exalted themselves above God. But this person is the climax. He's described in other ways throughout the Bible. He's the beast of Revelation 13, the Antichrist of 1 John 2, the little horn of Daniel 7, and so on. And it seems to me it's futile to speculate on his identity until he is revealed, but we're not going to be here for that, and I'll save that for my later talk. <laughs> Listen again to verses 5 and 6. Paul writes, Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? And now you know what is holding him back so that he may be revealed at the proper time. Even in the short time that Paul was with them, he thought that eschatology was worth teaching. I addressed this in a sermon last week or the week before that a lot of Christians tend to downplay the importance of the Bible's teaching on the end times, and it is possible to overemphasize that aspect of biblical teaching, but uh, we don't want to underemphasize it either. Even though he had an evangelistic ministry with them that was very brief, he thought the Thessalonians needed to know about the day of the Lord and the Antichrist and the return of the king. Also, we see in this uh, text that God has chosen not to tell us some things that he told Paul and that Paul told the Thessalonians. He says, uh, you know what's holding him back. And I remember vividly hearing John Piper say, well, they may have known, but we sure don't. <laughs> we can speculate, and we, we ha almost have to if we're going to engage this text. But we have to be okay with the fact that God has chosen for his own purposes 
not to tell us everything that we might be uh, curious about. And then also, I think, and for that reason, that we don't know everything, we have to also um, be okay with differences of interpretation on the Bible's end times teaching. I have on my shelf a book uh, entitled Three Views on the Rapture of the Church. The three contributors who all held a different position on the question of when the rapture will take place in relation to other end times prophecies were all colleagues, professors at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School at the same time. And they could write and uh, debate with one another in print and, and yet remain brothers and um, teaching colleagues in preparing people for the ministry. So um, we will respect others who disagree with us on how to best interpret what the Bible teaches um, about the end times. Um, Drew, godly interpreters have um, differed on the identity of this restrainer that's mentioned in verse 7. Uh, who or what are the options, and who or what do you think is most likely? Yeah, um, so the restrainer. This is also one of the major mysteries um, in, this, in this chapter. And it's kind of interesting uh, that although when we read verse 5 and verse 6, and Paul clearly had told the Thessalonians who this restrainer was or is, um, that is somewhat disappointing to us because it makes us go, well, we don't know. Why did he tell them? But God didn't see fit to tell us. But I actually find that to be a helpful piece when it comes to interpreting or arriving at some sort of an interpretation of who this individual is. And the reason I say that is because the Thessalonians knew what or who the restrainer was. A first century Thessalonian Christian understood who or what this restrainer was, which means whatever our interpretation, whatever we decide the restrainer is, it has to be something that, may, that, may, that would have made sense to a first-century Thessalonian believer. It can't be something that only today we can understand, but back then they would have had no concept of, no clue. So actually, I find that helpful, that they knew what it was, because that will help us when we speculate, hopefully wisely speculate. Um, we don't want to come up with interpretive options that just would have been completely foreign to a first century Christian in, in the, the, the city of Thessalonica. Does that make sense? So um, we, it would probably be unwise to think that the restrainer, for example, is something or someone like Google or the CEO of Google or Facebook or Elon Musk or something like this. This is, um, that would probably be an unlikely interpretation, right? Because they would have understood who or what this restrainer was. So before I talk about the identity, I want to mention just two functions, two main purposes of the restrainer. If you look at verse 6, the Apostle Paul says, And now you know what is holding him back, so that he may be revealed at the proper time. Now the he there, he's talking about the man of lawlessness, so in verse 6, what we see is the first function is that the, the, the restrainer's job is to hold back 
to restrain this man of lawlessness until the proper time. Now, presumably, that's God's proper timing. Uh, So we can assume that, at least this is my understanding of the text, maybe these two would have a different uh, take on it, but God has a a perfect time for when the man of lawlessness will be revealed. And the restrainer's job is to restrain this man of lawlessness until God's timing has arrived on the scene. Whatever that timing is, we don't exactly know, but that's God's timing, the proper timing. The second function of the the restrainer is that he's going to be removed. That's in verse 7. If you look at verse 7, it says, For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who holds it back will continue to do so until he is taken out of the way. So the restrainer is there to hold back the man of lawlessness and then also one day to be removed. The restrainer will be removed. So those are the two main functions or purposes that we see of the restrainer in the text. So who or what is the restrainer and why do we even phrase the question that way? Who or what? Well, if you look at verse 6, again, the restrainer is actually described um, by Paul, Paul's use of verbs that are in the neuter gender, which is kind of an interesting thing for us, but um, he doesn't describe the restrainer in verse 6 as a he or as a she. The, the verb that's being described is neuter. It's neither male nor female. He says, what is holding him back? Now you know what is holding him back. That what is implying some sort of impersonal agent. But in verse 7, Paul says, uh, For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one, or literally he, but the one who holds it back. So there he's referred to, the restrainers referred to, in masculine terms. So in verse 6, he's referred to in the neuter, neither male nor female. In verse 7, the restrainer is referred to literally as he. He who holds the man of lawlessness back. So how do we make sense of that? In verse 6, he's referred to in the neuter. In verse 7, he's referred to in the masculine. What do we do with that? Who or what is this restrainer? Well, there are... um, what I see to be three main interpretive options. There are many, many more. Trust me, there are a lot more, but I'm just going to mention three. And uh, all three of these um, interpretive options are there because they assume that the restrainer is a force for good. Because the man of lawlessness is an evil force, the restrainer is thought to be a good force, or at least an instrument that's being used for good. And so that kind of uh, guides these next interpretive options. So I'll give you three interpretive options, and then I'll give you what I think um, a very, very tentative uh, preference. So the first option is that the restrainer is an angel. An angel. And uh, this is an attempt to make sense out of the neuter in verse 6 and the masculine in verse 7, right? Because an angel is a spirit being, but they're also referred to as, as people. They're personal beings. 
And specifically, uh, option number one, the restrainer has been viewed as the angelic being who in Revelation chapter 20 binds Satan and casts him into the abyss for the duration of the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ. So this is one, I think, um, probable interpretation that the restrainer is an, is an angel, and specifically the one that's identified in Revelation 20 who binds Satan for the thousand years uh, in the abyss. Um, the, the angel of the abyss is also what uh, this individual is known as. The only, uh, there are more, there's more that I could say about this first option, but one knock against this first option would be, why didn't Paul just say that? Why is he evasive? Why is he vague? Why doesn't he just spell that out? Why say, and now you know? You know, Thessalonians, I'm not going to say it, but you know. Why not just say, it's the angel? So, and this is important for the next couple of uh, interpretations. So, so why doesn't he just spell it out? Why be evasive about it? Why, why use guarded language? All right, so option number two, the gospel. The gospel, specifically the preaching of the gospel, is viewed as this restraining force, this restraining agent. And the thought is that when the gospel goes out, the comprehensive good that results, think about the spiritual good, the political good, the social, the moral good that comes from the preaching of the gospel, that this will be used by God to restrain this man of lawlessness. So that's a second interpretive option. One thing that is in its favor, as Jesus says in Matthew chapter 24, verse 14, he says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So we know that the gospel has to be preached to all nations before the end comes. And so this second option sees that the restraining force is that the gospel has not yet reached all nations, all peoples. And until that happens, the man of lawlessness cannot be revealed. A couple of knocks against this interpretation is, why wouldn't Paul just say it? Why, again, why be evasive? Why be guarded? Why be so elusive? Why not just say that the gospel needs to go out and that the gospel is what's restraining the man of lawlessness? It also is hard to make sense of how the gospel fits in with the neuter verb uh, that's used in verse 6 and the masculine in verse 7. I just, it's hard to see how that fits. And then there's the third option, and this one tries to make sense out of Paul's guarded, sort of evasive um, language. And now you know, I'm not going to spell it out, but you know what's restraining him. And the third option is that Paul is referring to civil government. He's referring to civil law and order. And the reason he's being evasive, the reason he's not spelling it out is because he doesn't want the Thessalonians being accused of treason or anarchy, which they already had been. If you read in Acts chapter 17, they had already been accused of this. Here's verse 7 of Acts chapter 17. They, they bring some of the believers before some officials, and the Thessalonian believers are accused of defying Caesar's decrees and saying that there is another king, 
one called Jesus. And so if Paul has already taught the Thessalonians that the restrainer is civil government, and at the time that would have been the Roman government, but remember what he says in verse 7, it's going to be removed. The civil government will be removed one day, and then the rebellion's going to come. Well, that might have been viewed as treasonous. You're saying that Roman rule will come to an end, and the emperor is viewed as a god? Um, so he may have been wanting to protect them had his letter to the Thessalonians gotten into the wrong hands. So um, this view tries to make sense of that guarded, evasive language. He already told them in person that it's the Roman government, but he doesn't want to write it out in case it falls into the wrong hands. Um, so it makes sense of the guarded language. It also might make sense of the verb usage that he uses. So in verse 6, he, it's again neuter. That could refer to the Roman government as just this uh, impersonal force. But in verse 7, the restrainer is viewed in masculine terms, and it's thought that maybe that it would be the head of that government, so the emperor at that time. So the restrainer in Paul's day on this view is the same as in our day. It's civil government. And there's going to come a time when God will remove that restraining force. And when that happens, um, the lawless one will, uh, will be revealed and rebellion and opposition against God will come into full force. So very briefly, what is my uh, take on this? I would say maybe a combination of number two and number three. Um, that God wants the gospel to go out to all nations before the end comes and one of the ways that he allows the gospel to go out is by using civil government to pave the way. Good civil law and order makes for the gospel to be more readily shared. But there's going to come a time where God removes civil government uh, once the gospel has been preached to all nations. I can say more about this during the Q&R time, um, but that's my tentative um, Take on that, and I'm just going to quote one thing here from St. Augustine in his work called The City of God. He says, I admit that the meaning of this completely escapes me. <laughs> this is what he said about the restrainer, St. Augustine. He said, I, I admit that the meaning of this completely escapes me. And I would just um, echo that as well. <laughs> so. Well, Dave, you already said that uh, we would probably, well, no, you didn't even say probably. You just confidently said we won't be around for all this. Um, how does this text fit with uh, the pre-tribulational rapture view? According to the pre-tribulation rapture view, which you can see on the side, the church is resurrected and raptured before the tribulation begins. After the rapture, the church then returns with Christ, um, or after the rapture, if you look at the uh, slide, it's a little difficult to see. Uh, in the rapture, the church does not come back to the earth with Christ. They remain with Christ in heaven and come back later for his return. Let me try to build a case for a pre-tribulation rapture from the Thessalonian correspondence. The Thessalonians were suffering persecution for being Christians. There was no escape from this. Six verses talk about their trials and their persecutions. 
they were destined for this type of struggle. The question then becomes, will God do something about this in history? We know that in the eternal state there will be no more suffering, but can God intervene in history to make things right, to reward the righteous, and to punish the wicked? And the answer is yes. God is going to have his day in history. That's referred to as the day of the Lord in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I take that day as an extended period of time when God pours out his wrath on unbelievers. The ungodly will be devastated and destroyed, but the saints will be rescued. The day of the Lord, as I understand it, is equivalent to what we commonly refer to as the Great Tribulation period. When that day comes, Paul taught that the church would be rescued from the tribulation. We find that first in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 10. The Thessalonians were taught, quote, to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, and here's the key part, who rescues us from the coming wrath. How then are believers rescued? The answer is by rapture. Here we read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we be with the Lord forever. The rapture of the church is presented not so much as a uh, meet and greet in the air someplace, but as a rescue mission, rescued from the wrath of God that is coming. This teaching is reinforced in 1 Thessalonians 5, where Paul talks about the unexpected nature of the rapture. It comes, he says, like a thief in the night. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 sums it up. For God did not appoint us, Christians, to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. In that day, unbelievers experience wrath in the tribulation, but believers experience salvation from it. The salvation that's referred to in this verse is not your initial conversion experience. It is indeed the salvation or deliverance that you experience as a Christian from the coming wrath in the tribulation uh, period. Second Thessalonians 2 then responds to a false prophecy. As the persecution of the Thessalonians intensified, someone claiming to be a prophet announced that, and there's really somebody doing this, claimed to announce the tribulation has begun. The day of the Lord has arrived, verse 2. This, according to Paul, was a false claim. Paul had not changed his mind on the pre-tribulation rapture. The Thessalonians were shaken and alarmed by this teaching, again, verse 2. Why were they shaken and alarmed? Well, not because they feared the events of the tribulation. After all, they were used to going through suffering. But because Paul had taught them that they would be delivered from tribulation, and now, if the report is correct, they were not delivered. So Paul writes, 2 Thessalonians, 
uh, particularly chapter 2, to reinforce and clarify his, in my mind, pre-tribulation teaching. He addresses two elements of that teaching, and we see this in verse 1. First of all, he wants to talk about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and secondly, our being gathered together to him. The being gathered together to him, I take as a reference to the rapture, and the coming of the Lord, I take to be the second coming, which I understand as a complex of events that will happen when the Lord returns. I refer to a singular second coming. The Greek word here, it, we commonly hear it transliterated as the parousia, and the word refers to the presence of a person that sometimes can be for an extended period of time. For example, in Philippians 2.12, Paul talks about the Philippians obeying, not so much in his absence, but in his, not so much coming, but in his presence, in his time with them. In fact, we use in English the word coming to talk about this type of thing, the presence of an individual or a group. If I say something like, uh, in a few more weeks, an orchestra is coming, to the Allstate Arena. What I mean by that is not only that they're going to arrive and come in, that they're going to make their presence known during the concert, maybe they'll say afterwards and sign autographs and so on, but the whole event can be referred to as a, a coming, when something a significance ha happens in their presence. So it is with Christ. When he comes, all sorts of things happen. Dead saints are resurrected, living saints are raptured, the wrath of the Lamb is poured out on ungodly humanity, and ultimately the feet of Jesus touch the earth once again, and the Antichrist will be destroyed by the breath of his mouth, verse 8. All of this I see as a complex of events that can be summarized by the coming of the Lord. Verse 3, then, is key to his argument, and here... I'm going to read from the ESV, by a little exception with the NIV as it's uh, translated. Uh, the text in the ESV says, For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. The argument overall is clear. The tribulation period has not arrived because the tribulation sequence of events, the great apostasy, and the revelation of the man of lawlessness has not arrived. What's not clear is the relationship between the day of the Lord, or the tribulation, and the two events identified here, the apostasy and the coming of uh, the man of lawlessness. Do these events need to happen before the tribulation comes, as the NIV seems to, seems to indicate, and as a post-trib position might indicate, or do these events happen during the tribulation? And I can unpack this a little bit more later if you'd like, but I think it's the latter. In other words, Paul describes a sequence of events that happen during the tribulation. The events have not taken place so the tribulation has not arrived. Only when the events happen during the tribulation will people know that the tribulation has come upon them. Yeah, where does Paul talk about a rapture in this passage? Well, 
I think he does mention it in verse 1 in terms of the gathering together of uh, the saints to him. I take, and uh, there are multiple views on this, uh, I, I take the restrainer in verses 6 and 7 to be the Holy Spirit, but not so much just the Holy Spirit is hard to imagine uh, a, a deity being uh, removed, but certainly the Holy Spirit is the one who's powerful enough to counteract the work of Satan in the man of lawlessness, but particularly, I take it as a work of the Holy Spirit as he works in believers to restrain sin. And that's what happens even today. The Holy Spirit working in our lives contradicts or guards against or helps remove evil in the world. And if believers are raptured, then that paves the way for the revelation of the man in sin and all sorts of wickedness uh, that goes on during the tribulation period. Paul then returns to the same language that he used in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. In the tribulation period, unbelievers are described in uh, verse uh, 10 particularly as those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and to be saved, and once again I take the saved here, as saved from the wrath of God in the tribulation period. Believers, on the other hand, should thank God because from the beginning, God chose you to be saved from, again, the wrath of God that is to come. In other words, unbelievers are destined for the wrath of God in the tribulation, but believers are destined for deliverance through rapture, from the tribulation so they can share in the glory of Christ. In conclusion then, he tells the Thessalonians, don't be shaken, the tribulation has not arrived and this should give us eternal encouragement and good hope. All right, let me uh, give you let me give you in brief um, a post-tribulational interpretation of um, our text for the day. Um, and the executive summary is that the rapture and the destruction of the wicked, including the Antichrist, um, constitute together uh, one event and um, they are together part of the day of the Lord. Uh, it seems to me that um, we who are sit at this table all agree that God's justice and righteousness will be vindicated in history, and so we agree to a millennium, uh, a thousand year, uh, literal or otherwise, reign of Jesus on the earth, which begins when he returns in glory. The question is whether that return is divided into two phases, um, separated by the tribulation period, and um, my view is that it's most natural to view the um, rapture, resurrection, and return of our Lord as um, one event, um, barring some a clear teaching uh, that it is in two stages. And I think it's possible to infer that it's in two stages, but um, I don't see Jesus or Paul or anybody else in the Bible spelling it out as, uh, as clearly as we might wish. Um, the coming of the Lord and our being gathered to him 
in 2 Thessalonians 2 is the same as the coming of the Lord in 1 Thessalonians 4. And I'm not sure why I'm not seeing the... Uh, there, there we go. There's the, there, there's the, the um, alternative diagram that shows how much we are in agreement here that the Lord's second coming is at the end of the current age of history and begins the, the millennial reign of Jesus. But in this view, the post-tribulation view, the tribulation ends this current church age and then the Lord returns raptures his living saints, resurrects those who ha are asleep, and they, having met him in the air, come with him uh, immediately to uh, begin his reign. Um, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, um, with no apparent change of subject, Paul goes from talking about the rapture of the church, chapter 4, that was the first Sunday in this series, to talking about the day of the Lord. And remember that chapter divisions are um, a helpful addition to our Bibles that were not part of Paul's original letter. So I don't think that we should think that because in our English Bibles it says chapter 5 that we are now on a different subject. Paul talks in 1 Thessalonians 4 about the rapture of the church and the resurrection of the saints and continues to talk about um, the day of the Lord when the wicked are destroyed, which will come like a thief in the night, catching them off guard. And then in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, this flow of thought continues that relief for believers happens when... Boy, I don't know where my slides are. No, it's gone. Um, no, there it is. Relief for believers happens when Jesus returns in glory to judge the wicked, not several years later. Um, you look more closely at today's sermon text, which we will in the sanctuary in just a little while, and we see that this is, appears to be a package deal that relief for the believers happens when? When Jesus is revealed in glory to judge the wicked, and that is clearly a um, post-tribulational uh, event. And then the day of the Lord that uh, Paul talks about in these two uh, epistles does not come until after the rebellion and the Antichrist. If the day of the Lord includes the rapture, which I take it it does, then 2 Thessalonians 2 would settle the matter because Paul says that that day of the Lord will not come until after the rebellion and uh, the, the man of lawlessness is revealed. Um, if Christians were to be raptured before the Antichrist's career, uh, I'm not sure why he goes into the detail that he does here in 2 Thessalonians 2 to talk about that period because they won't be around to see it. Um, it, it seems like he might have more easily answered their, um, their confusion by saying, wait a minute, uh, how could you be worried about this? Didn't I tell you that we wouldn't be here? And uh, instead he talks about the rebellion and uh, the um, man of lawlessness. Um, either position could go to other passages in Scripture 
for support. We're trying to confine our, our arguments to the Thessalonian correspondence. Um, and so I'm, I'm going to abbreviate my comments um, so that we do have uh, a few minutes for questions and answers. But let me, let me briefly uh, address one issue, and that is what difference does this make? Now, that's on the agenda, and we may have time to talk more about that. But um, it seems to me that one of the chief benefits or practical values of the pre-tribulation view is that we believers ought to be prepared to meet Jesus at any time. Nothing else has to happen before our Lord could appear, and we should be ready to meet him. It seems to me that one of the chief practical values of the post-tribulational view is that we believers ought to be prepared, if necessary, to suffer persecution for our commitment to Jesus, even the persecution that is described uh, as the Great Tribulation. But um, if um, the post-trib position, like mine, is correct, we still need to be prepared to meet Jesus at any moment because we don't know but what a stroke, aneurysm, car accident, plane crash could take us into his presence in an instant. And if um, the pre-tribulation view is correct, we should still be prepared, if necessary, to suffer persecution for his sake. There are plenty of believers right now in the world who are suffering terrible persecution, and they're not sitting around saying, gee, do you think this is the great tribulation or just ordinary garden variety tribulation? It's all the tribulation anybody would care to handle. So although I think it's important for us to always take seriously what the Bible says and try to understand it as best we can, the practical take-home value may not be all that great uh, when it comes to pre-trib versus post-trib. You're on. All right. <laughs> well, hopefully you can um, digest all of that. Uh, but we have several minutes remaining this morning before we uh, are going to be dismissed. And we want to take some time uh, to hear from you questions uh, that you might have for us that uh, we would be happy to field. So I'm just going to have you all, if I see a hand, I'll, I'll kind of point in your direction. And then I'll repeat the question so we all hear it. And also because we're recording it this morning. So I'll repeat the question as best I can. And then um, one of us will tackle it or maybe more than one of us will tackle the question. So is there, are there some questions? I see in the back, Don, I believe. Yeah. Okay, so he's referring to Revelation, and he says specifically Revelation chapter 4 through 20, and his question is, why isn't the church mentioned? If what's being described in those chapters is the Great Tribulation, then why isn't the church mentioned as uh, going through that, enduring that? Um, so I'll throw that to you two, since that's pretty, pretty uh, on point to both of your your uh, views. Paul probably told um, John's congregation the answer to that question too, but he hasn't told us, so that's his. <laughs> well, in, in my view, um, that, that 
section in Revelation is talking about the great tribulation and all the suffering poured out. And the, the reason why it's not mentioned there is that the church has been uh, raptured. I'm, I'm not sure that's one of the best arguments for a pre-trib rapture, but uh, that, that would be the response. Okay, yes. Okay, so during the seven-year tribulation, according to the pre-trib view, will there be new believers? Will people come to faith during that time period? Yes, and, and so the promise in Thessalonians and the promise to us is a rapture of the church, resurrection and rapture of the church. What happens after that? Certainly the gospel is still going to be proclaimed and other people will respond to that and become genuine believers just the way we become believers today. Many of them will suffer and face martyrdom. But uh, the focus of uh, the message in Thessalonians is on a promise to the church uh, prior to uh, the tribulation. That, that um, observation is actually one um, reason why um, I, I don't think that being rescued from wrath necessitates being removed from the scene. That is, if there are Christ followers on earth during the great tribulation who are not suffering God's wrath, even though they're on the scene at the time of the outpouring of God's wrath, then it seems possible that Christians in the current era can be rescued from God's, you know, protected from God's wrath without his having to take us to heaven to meet Jesus. Um, we, we can be guarded, protected from wrath, even while people in our country are experiencing the wrath of God. And that will happen even on a pre-trib view for believers who come to faith during the tribulation. All right. Good. Yeah, right here. So the question is, uh, Christ Community Church, do we have a position on a, a view of the tribulation, pre-trib or post-trib? There are other views. Uh, but do we have a settled uh, view on that? And I'll just take that one. The answer is no. We don't. We have a very clear uh, statement of faith that we say these are the non-negotiables. If you want to be a member here at Christ Community Church, this is what we want you to affirm. Your view on the tribulation is not one of those. Now, we do want to hear that you believe Christ will return and uh, set things right. Of course, that's very important, but your view, whether it's pre-trib, post-trib, or another view, it, yeah, we don't have a, a, a stance on that as a church. Other questions? Yes, in the back. Okay, so the man of lawlessness, the question is about this individual's identity. 
we, it was mentioned that this is a person from history. And so the question is, does that mean this is someone like we're waiting for in the future? Or could it be someone that is brought back from the past? Um, what do you guys think? First of all, I take that as an actual person, not a principal or something like that. A person who lives in history, I, I, I didn't mean to imply someone that's currently here necessarily. And I don't think there's any indication in this passage that someone from the past will be resurrected and be, become that, that person. It's a, a, a person in history in that particular time frame. I'll just add to that that um, there are some scholars who actually see uh, Paul's understanding of the man of lawlessness from, he gets his understanding from individuals in the past, specifically um, characters in Daniel, um, and there are references in Ezekiel that may have informed Paul's view of the man of lawlessness. Not that he thought that those individuals be, would be reincarnated or resurrected and put on the scene or something like that, but they informed his view um, from the book of Daniel, from Ezekiel. Other questions? This is an area in which we are not in disagreement, by the way. Um, it, when it comes to the book of Revelation, for example, and the description of the beast, because Revelation is so highly symbolic and figurative, it, it's possible to take that figure as a metaphor for tyranny, Roman um, aggression, and so on, possible. And the Apostle John says that there are, there are plenty of antichrists out there. But he also says, but you've heard that antichrist is coming, and that seems to indicate that he's expecting some real individual historical person. And Paul in Second Thessalonians seems... To, to me to very clearly indicate that however many antichrist figures there have been down through the centuries, however figurative the beast language of Revelation may be, we, we should expect that there will come a culminating figure, a real live person, a real bad guy. Yeah. I think we'll take one more question and then uh, just a couple of concluding remarks uh, as far as application goes. Yes.
it is good to know, to gain knowledge on these subjects and lots of others in the Bible, but the fallback, this is me now, the fallback and focus should be our faith in the gospel, shouldn't it? It is good to gain knowledge, but don't lose focus. Why are we teaching it now? Well, it's all over TV, it's everywhere, and, and there is deception in, in these things. And I think part of that deception is we lose focus arguments over post or free and so many other topics, it pulls us away from that gospel message that we should have inside and be sharing with others. Um, we have to be careful of, of rabbit holding down these different channels. We'll have nothing to say, do, or believe at the moment of our death, but there's a fine line that Ken mentioned between giving this too much attention Yeah. So, Kit, you're making a lot of good connections. And actually, it leads, and I'm, I'm going to just briefly conclude, because that's a great transition, good segue into just very briefly, application, so what, what difference does this make? And actually, Kit was hitting on a lot of it. And I'm just going to fire off a few items that will be a little bit of a repeat, um, and then we'll conclude. The first thing is, so what, you know, what, what are some implications of this? Well, the first is, it's already been mentioned, uh, let's not be dogmatic in identifying who these individuals are. The man of lawlessness, the restrainer. Um, we need to be very cautious. We need to be careful. Let's not be dogmatic. God did not see fit to spell it out for us. So let's not get lost in speculation, which leads into the second point. Because we know the day of the Lord is a certainty, we need to be about God's business today. And what has he called us to do? He's called us to love him, love others, and to make disciples. This is what we're called to do. If we want to be found faithful, if we want to be ready and alert, love God, love others, make disciples. Um, another implication is we know because uh, Paul was trying to comfort the Thessalonians, what we know is that God can be trusted with our future. Whether we're talking our individual future or the future of Human history, God can be trusted. What is an unknown to us is certain to him. He can be trusted. We can have hope and rest and, and the assurance that he's in control. And then the last thing, I'll just, this is a quote from a scholar, F.F. Bruce, in his uh, uh, commentary, and he's referring to the man of lawlessness here. He says, as for a possible further application concerning the man of lawlessness, the best policy might be for everyone who studies this matter to ask the question which came to the lips of the disciples in the upper room when they were told that one of them was a traitor. Lord, is it I? The spirit of Antichrist will be strengthened if Christians allow themselves to be seduced by it and to foster it in their hearts. It will be diminished and weakened if they individually watch for every manifestation of it within themselves cast it out, and wage unceasing war against it, confessing Jesus as Lord and Christ, not only in word, but in deed and in truth. And Dave, you said something similar to that earlier. Um, so with that, uh, that's all I have. Um, I don't, either, either of you have concluding remarks? Just what Paul does to conclude his chapter. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace, gave us eternal encouragement and good hope. 
encourage your hearts, and strengthen you in every good deed and word. And let all God's people say, Amen. Amen. Thank you for coming.